Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1336 entitled They Fight. Our podcast title is Podzilla vs. King Kong. I'm Rob Jirajan. And our co-host, Mecca Megan McHugh, is taking a well-earned break. And I kid you not, she deserves it after soldiering on with Zero G throughout the pandemic and the successive lockdowns. And I usually say this at the end of the show, but thank you, Megan. Okay, I have hired myself to the actual real-life cinema as opposed to paddling down the digital streams and witness the lizard ape wonder of the world that is Adam Wingard's new movie, Godzilla vs. Kong. Now, King Kong was famously brought back alive, albeit briefly, from Skull Island in 1933. Directors and producers on that project were Marion C. Cooper, Ernest B. Shodzak, and Carl Denham. <laughs> for the US American studio RKO Pictures, named incidentally for the Keith Orpheum theatre chain, with radio tacked on the front end of the acronym including a direct sequel called Son of Kong, also, which came out in 1933. My God, they were busy then. There have been at least 12 movies spun off from that original King Kong movie by a variety of production houses and directors, including names like Legendary Pictures, Dino De Laurentiis, and the Lord of the Rings Hobbit director, Peter Jackson. Look, there have been a huge number of other spin-offs as well, including an animated television series and some movies that sort of pivoted off of that too. Now, re-released in 1952, King Kong inspired a whole new wave of ginormous monster movies, including Godzilla. But before we get on to the big G, let's start off with some of Max Steiner's glorious score for King Kong from 1933. And this one comes from a a really good album, Film Music Classics. This is one of those Naxos double CDs. And this was a special reconstruction of Max Steiner's score. They churned it out with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra, and it had some excellent cues on it, as well as the main title theme and other well-remembered sequences from the film. I think we'll kick off from where it all ended, really, the finale from Max Steiner's King Kong Complete 1933 film score. King napped from his prehistoric Lost World Island home. King Kong has climbed the Empire State Building and been shot off its terrifying heights by a squadron of biplanes as the great beast lies shattered on the pavements of New York. By turns, terrified and awed crowd gathers to witness the creature's last moments and Carl Denham, the go-getting director who went out and brought Kong back alive. 
utters that most famous line in genre cinema history. Uh, hi, this is Jim Beaver. I play Bobby Singer on the TV series Supernatural, and you're listening to 3 Triple R FM Zero G, you idiots. Well, Denim, the airplanes got him. Oh no, it wasn't the planes. It was beauty that killed the beast. A track from Max Steiner's iconic movie soundtrack for King Kong from 1933, from the album Film Music Classics, King Kong, the complete 1933 film score, reconstructed by John Morgan from Max Steiner's original score, recorded by the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. Rob Jan here on Zero G, talking about the new movie Godzilla vs. Kong. Partly inspired by the 1952 theatrical re-release of the original 1933 King Kong, Japan's Toho Studios' first Godzilla movie stomped in all its saurian radioactive breath gory through Tokyo in 1954. The franchise now has 36 films, 32 produced across four distinct eras by Toho in Japan, plus a recent trilogy of animated movies which you can catch up with on Netflix, and including the poorly received 1998 US American TriStar Pictures movie, and the now four legendary studios MonsterVerse franchise films as well. Interestingly enough, I've just read in John LeMay's fascinatingly comprehensive two-volume set of the big book of Japanese giant monster movies, which covers Daikeiju films from 1954 to 2017, that there actually were a couple of Japanese silent movies produced back in the 1930s, one of which was called Japanese King Kong, and it had a a vaudeville theatre company where an actor was playing King Kong on stage. <laughs> there was another one called King Kong Appears in Edo, or Tokyo, and that also had a King Kong reference in it. Although none of these really sort of address the themes of King Kong itself, you can actually say that the first sort of Daikeiju movies in Japan came out in the 30s rather than in later eras. LeMay also goes on to add that those two films were lost in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, which is incredibly ironic if true, given that radiation and the atom bombings of Japan, World War II, feature heavily in the origin story of Godzilla, as well as creating a constant theme throughout all of the films. Separate from its post-atomic themes, Godzilla also, of course, shares a certain amount of lost world tropes with King Kong and the sense of an ancient and primal natural force imposed chaotically against the civilised modern world, which in turn is both overwhelmed by monstrous rampage, but it's ultimately, and finally temporarily until the next sequel, triumphant. Both monsters have had stouches and team-ups with a range of foes and allies of convenience before and after. But in Godzilla's case, battling 
Gamera, the flying behemoth turtle, <laughs> the triple-headed alien Daikaiju Ghidorah, and an entire menagerie of beasties, including the eponymous Mothra, and an arsenal of supersized human-built and piloted robots and flying warships, including a number of aspirational mecha-godzillas, which is to say, <laughs> Gojira turned into its own nemesis as a robot. Godzilla almost even duked it out with a giant Frankenstein's monster in an unmade film in the 1960s. Uh, judging by the stand-in Kaiju that encountered Frankie's outrageously enlarged baby in the film that was made, Frankenstein versus Baragon, it might have been a good match to miss. The Big G fought Marvel's Avengers themselves in comic book form and has had its own titled books in that medium. And yes, in Marv Newland's one joke, but beloved 1969 animated short film, Bambi Meets Godzilla, Gajira's enormous foot abruptly puts an end to the deer's pastoral idols. Godzilla even had a son, Tadzilla. <laughs> An evolution that he, well aped from Kong, who not only had a son, but also a queen, and various other spin-offs and variants. I am looking, yes, at you, Shaw Brothers' 1977 satire, The Mighty Peking Man. Both Kong and Godzilla, of course, have become such appropriately vast cultural touchstones that their cameo and featured appearances across all of pop culture and all media are entirely too numerous to list which, as you all know by now, is Zero G's very convenient shorthand for we'd have to spend six or seven shows just doing that, so we're not going to. Two such iconic giant monsters were destined to collide on screen, which they dutifully, if somewhat comically, did in Toho's 1962 film King Kong vs. Godzilla, which was partly played for laughs and, weirdly enough, has its own complicated cinematic heritage and links to a King Kong vs. Frankenstein sequel proposed by the original King Kong movie's special effects wizard Willis O'Brien. Directed by Ishiro Honda, King Kong vs. Godzilla was only the third Godzilla franchise movie, and the first time that either characters had properly appeared on screen in colour. It's all a bit madcap, with Godzilla being roused out of his underwater slumber by a US submarine, and Kong himself being rather embarrassingly exploited by a drug company who uses him for promotions, which, come to think of it, is actually not that far off Carl Denham's idea to package Kong as the ultimate theatrical entertainment. Well, before Anne Darrow or indeed Faye Ray could utter a trademark piercing scream, Kong and Zilla end up punching on in a variety of Japanese settings, stepping on and through meticulously crafted model buildings until they eventually wind up on the slopes of Mount Fuji. Who wins? Well, in spite of a persistent and incorrect urban myth about there being dual endings with differing winners to cater for the Japanese or American markets... At that stage in Godzilla's career, Toho was still painting him as a villain and not as the sometimes hero that he later would become. And so they considered that King Kong won the battle, although it's kind of inconclusive. And of course, no keiju were permanently harmed in the making of that motion picture. They actually did make this film deliberately funny as a satire on the television industry. And Kong later fought a mechanical version of himself in King Kong Escapes in 1967, which was the second of Toho's Kong films. 
Whether you were Team Kong or Team Zilla, this titanic struggle can certainly be said to have inspired more than one future battle of the century. From Freddy vs. Jason through Aliens vs. Predator to Iron Man vs. Captain America. And, well, a whole plethora of epic Donnybrooks through the fictional ages where the title couples ended up somewhat verse for wear. Okay, or in Kong's case, are you KO? We've had a Kong track. Now let's spin one from King Kong vs. Godzilla. 60s style with the Godzilla franchise's flagship composer, the himself now legendary film score maestro, Akira Ifakube. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on 0G on 3 triple R FM. King Kong versus Godzilla, Akira Ifakube's soundtrack for the 1962 Toho film. His 50-year career as a composer included 250 movies, including Godzilla. He also created Godzilla's signature roar and the sound effects of his multi-ton footsteps. The roar came from rubbing a leather glove along the loose strings of a double bass. An ironic piece of Godzilla-relevant trivia is that Ifakube himself suffered from wartime exposure to radiation, though not from the bombings, but rather from inadequately shielded X-rays which he used when studying the strength of wood in his posting as a forestry resources researcher. It was this illness reportedly that resulted in him changing careers to pursue full-time composing. Alrighty, we've trundled through some Kong and Gojira backstory to prep for a look-see at Adam Wingard's new Godzilla vs. Kong movie, which I experienced recently in an actual physical cinema. Huzzah! Now, this is the fourth Legendary Studios picture in their franchise, which runs parallel but does not connect with Toho Studios' own revived Godzilla productions. We have seen Monster Maven Garth Edwards' spectacular 2014 Godzilla, which brought the dinosaurian dude ashore in the United States, and Jordan Voigt Roberts' retro Vietnam War-era Kong Skull Island back in 2017. And that actually did star multiple Marvel Cinematic Universe actors who portrayed characters in the Marvelverse, including Nick Fury, Captain Marvel, Loki, and Nova Corman Day. I'll leave it to you as an exercise to figure out which actors they were. And most recently, we've seen the -the over-the-top apocalyptic 2019 Godzilla, King of Monsters, directed by Michael Doherty, which saw Gojira vying for the post of top beast against the alien Ghidra, triple-headed Hydra-winged monster. So where are we now? Well, Godzilla is the apex predator of Earth, and he has battled the other kaiju into submission, or they've surrendered, or they're just plain dead, like Ghidorah, the space monster. Now, Godzilla is now kind of the protector of the Earth and king of the monsters. It's been three years since the last daikaiju sighting or attack outside of Kong on Skull Island, and now the underfunded Keiju tracking organisation, Monarch, well, it's taken a big step up in life after the events of the previous movies. And it's, well, Monarch of all its surveys in the field of big beasties. 
or is it? There's a powerful multinational corporation that's entered the picture as well, with its own agenda for the monsters that have been recently plaguing the planet. So the stage is set for a catastrophic exploitative grab that will completely upset the fragile status quo between humans and titans and pitch King Kong against Godzilla in a competition to decide who really is the king of monsters. Is it ape, lizard or perhaps even homo sapien? Godzilla vs. Kong is directed by Adam Wingard, a US American filmmaker known for the... Blair Witch sequel, I think it's number three in that series from 2016, an adaptation of the Japanese anime Death Note in 2017, and also he's slated to direct, uh, what is it, uh, Thundercats, an adaptation of that, and a sequel to Face Off as well. Not necessarily the director I would have tapped, but, you know, Gareth Edwards was not entirely unknown when he did his Godzilla too. Well then, I have to admit that I'm not entirely in tune with Thomas Holkenborg's soundtrack for Godzilla vs. Kong. He's also known as Junkie XL. We've heard his work before on films like Divergent, Mad Max Fury Road, Deadpool, The Tomb Raider, Reboot, Alita, Battle Angel, and Terminator Dark Fate, Sonic the Hedgehog, and unfortunately, Zack Snyder's long cut, very long cut, very, very, very long cut of Justice League. But, you know, I won't hold any of the duds in that lot against him, and it's a it's a very competent, workmanlike soundtrack. I did actually like this little rap, though, that I found. I think they might have used this uh, in a trailer or something, but, you know, it's um, basically Godzilla versus Kong in a rap form, one that I can actually play. It's not too explicit. And here we go with that. Godzilla versus Kong, round one. Hello, you little lovelies. This is your old fat auntie Jack on Radio Free Triple R. You're listening to Zero G, and if you don't listen to it closely, I'm going to jump through your speakers and rip your bloody arms off. And I will too. Won't I, Robert? Jack, we know you'll be back. Though you're ten feet tall, you don't scare us at all. You're big. Well, I suppose I'd have to say that if it came down to it, my money would be on Auntie Jack. Godzilla versus King Kong, here we go. And that particular track comes from the movie and also from an album called Geek Music. Well, Adam Wingard's Godzilla versus Kong. Oh, gosh. Short take is that I very much enjoyed it. As I said at the start of the show, the title for Zero G today is They Fight. Well, they do. And amazingly spectacular epic stoush it is. (laughs) I had wished that I'd been able to get to an IMAX cinema to see this. I'm not even sure if that's open, actually. Um, But in any case, I did see a, a VMAX screen, so that was big enough. 3D would have been even more impressive. I've seen most of the other Godzilla films in this sequence and the Kong film in 3D, and they've been very well done in terms of the medium that they've chosen to visit. Now, I do like that this film does deal with a lot of the consequences of the other films, 
especially with Kong on Skull Island. And they've even leaned into a hoary old science fiction trope dating back centuries, which they've previously touched upon in this franchise, which is absolute nonsense, but it's good enough for fantasy where Geiger fauna can run around without collapsing under its own weight. <laughs> There's a lot of salvage from the previous Daikaiju stouches as well, that sort of plot ideas and returning casts and so on. Uh, and I think they've done that quite effectively too. It's Some of it runs in the background, but it gives you enough resonance to feel that you are actually part of a Monsterverse franchise rather than just sort of plopping along on standalone films. They've also leaned into some Daikaiju tropes, partly because they are required to do so by Toho Studios. The shoe is on the other foot now. Instead of Toho acquiring the license to RKO King Kong, it's gone the other way now with Legendary using Godzilla. Um, Interestingly enough, the trope of Godzilla being a primal force, not quite as emotionally engaged with the action as Kong clearly is in this film, is peddled here. And it's kind of a good contrast between the two giant creatures. Keiju movie fans will be familiar with the idea of there being one human being who can communicate in a fashion with one of the creatures, and that is trotted out here too. To good effect, actually. I quite appreciated that. There's a paranoid whistleblower podcaster (laughs) to bring things up to the moment. Gee, I wonder who he reminds me of. (laughs) And, well, you know, once again, we find out that organizational security is actually both useless online in the digital realm and on the ground or indeed under it. Just seems to be something where you can just wander around these secret bases and hardly ever be challenged. But, you know, there's an inside man in this case, so yeah, we'll sort of wave the magic plot wand over that and let it go away. Godzilla is hyper-competitive in this one. Uh, It's a major plot factor. He's smart as a whip and must be the two saurian brains that he's got because his tail is actually very, very tactical. And Kong is also smart, very, very smart, with a ginormous brain. Good God, I sound like Donald Trump there for a moment. Ah, the Trump and Z. Well, there are additional human villains in this one too, and they make all the difference to the motivation of the plot. And there is a fight at sea that has to be seen to be believed. Uh, Amphibious lizard against ape. And let me tell you, it's all about where you choose to take your stand. And that is an amazing moment in cinema history. (laughs) Oh, God. It's also nice to see that somebody built Elon Musk's magnetic levitation hyperloop transport system. (laughs) That does make an appearance in the film. And they have anti-gravity engines for some of their vehicles. So I don't know whether this boost in technology has come about because of the Kaiju interactions and we've been sort of forced to develop them on a war footing because we've been battling these beasts. Um, But, you know, all to the good, it is a science fiction film. So we've, we've sort of backed in and hooked up to those kind of ideas as well. And no one seems to worry anymore about Godzilla's radioactive halitosis breath. Maybe they've got some really cracking good new anti-radiation meds or something. It's just sort of like, you know, in the old days you'd have the radioactive breath would cause all sorts of problems amongst the population of cities. Oh, and by the way, 
The choice of cities in this one is actually spot on, and it is really an old joke. <laughs> On the name King Kong, yeah, you can probably figure out where they're going to fight just from that. <laughs> well, the themes that they run through in this film are classic ones for both Kong and Godzilla, as we were saying earlier on in the show. Um, Lost worlds uh, for Kong, especially, and also Godzilla. And I thought that they did a rather good job of exploring their particular lost world that they dig up literally in this one. It's been heralded and signposted in previous movies but here they really delve down deep into it uh, and it's actually quite spectacularly filmed with some really cool ideas based upon the entirely absurd concept but you know i'm giving them that because this is one of those six impossible things before breakfast that you have in this fantasy film that kind of walks like a science fiction film at times all right, so a lot of good things going on in Godzilla vs. Kong. And of course, a lot of that is down to the characters, Kong and Godzilla, because that's what we're there for, really. We want to see the epic battle between those two titans. Once again, they've used motion capture performers to inform the actions of the creatures in this film and that actually works fine and is a actually quite charming tribute to the original idea of the man in the suit performers for the Godzilla movies at least and some of the uh, <laughs> Toho Kong films uh, but I think that works terrifically here once again they really do make you believe that you're watching some kind of at least plausible maybe living creatures in action and there's a lot of emotion to be had in in spite of uh, any restrictions they might have incurred to be had in the creation of the facial expressions for both Godzilla and Kong boy those critters can be mean when they want to and also surprisingly gentle <laughs> so there you go actors and characters in and of themselves they really should start getting around to giving out awards to suit performers for these sorts of things it's about time now there are a great deal of human actors in this film too most of which don't get squashed <laughs> well i don't know you'll have to find that out for yourself and we'll get onto those in a moment here on zero g science fiction fantasy and historical radio rob jan flying solo today without co-host megan McHugh, and we'll have another track right now i thought we'd go a bit more exotic for this track it's by Le Du Love Orchestra, which is a Hollywood orchestra. Uh, Bobby Wood's on voice and orchestration for this one. And I just thought that this kind of summed up how King Kong must be feeling, or he probably felt, during the lockdown on Skull Island that he endured. Respect and fellow feeling, my great ape. Hi, this is Michael Palin, and right now... You are lucky enough to be listening to 102.73 Triple R FM. Hmm. I'm not sure that even Michael Palin has ventured to journey to Skull Island. King Kong Blues, Le Du Love Orchestra, from their album King Kong. All right, on to the human cast of Godzilla vs. Kong. And they actually all put in pretty tight performances in this because they have to be they're going to be stepped on and roared at and acting against 
green screens and all sorts of other things in this. So they've got to know what they're doing, and mostly they do, I think. Well, let's start with Alexander Skarsgård, who, of course, we know from all sorts of genre productions, including The Stand, where he plays Randall Flagg, and uh, True Blood, where he was Eric Northman, and Melancholia as well, as being part of that huge clan of actors who are so influential in cinema at the moment. Now, he plays a character in this film who's a monarch geologist and a map maker. So he's going to be instrumental in the story. He actually prepped for the role for this film by researching the particular theory that's at the heart of one of the tropes of Godzilla versus Kong. And he also learned sign language to communicate with one of the actors in the film who has a particularly important and critical role in the plot. Millie Bobby Brown. Well, we've seen her in so many things now from The Stranger Things where she plays Jane Eleven Ives to all sorts of other genre productions including Enola Holmes where she was the title character in that Netflix mystery film. Not only is she the youngest person ever selected to be a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador, she is also being tapped, and I don't know which is a greater honour, <laughs> to be in a Russo Brothers adaptation of the graphic novel The Electric State. She is reprising her role from at least one previous film in the legendary monarch universe. So it's good that they've actually brought some people back in this. Is she still a thorn in the side of the establishment? Is she what? <laughs> Now, there's Rebecca Hall playing Dr. Eileen Andrews. Now, she's another monarch officer, uh, an anthropological linguist, and essentially she just sort of thought she'd be like the Jane Goodall of King Kong, and that's pretty much the role she has in this, as well as being the sort of um, mentor, adopted mother of the little girl character in it. We've seen her before playing Maya Hansen in Iron Man 3, as well as being in Transcendence opposite Johnny Depp. She does a pretty good job of this, especially since she's half drowned most of the time in the pouring rain and the salt spray of the ocean scenes that uh, this film features. And when I say features, it really does go to town on them. Oh, yeah, Rebecca Hall was in that um, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman biographical drama back in 2017, too. So, Brian Tyree Henry plays Bernie Hayes, the paranoid podcasting whistleblower that we mentioned before. He's uh, working for Apex Cybernetics. And once again, it just shows you how lax the security is on these multinational fictional corporations. <laughs> Look, he's got a, a sort of a thankless role here. He's got a lot of exposition to deliver, and he does that well. And he reminds me a little bit of Nick Frost's character from that um, other paranoid conspiracy series we recently reviewed here. But we've seen him before in, well, at least we've heard his voice before, in the animated superhero film Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And he was also in the horror film Child's Play, as well as being on Broadway in The Book of Mormon. Shun Oguri plays Ren Serizawa, and we saw 
Ishiro Serizawa before in these movies. He was that um, uh, monarch scientist who sacrificed himself to restart Godzilla one stage. And so he's sort of following in his dad's footsteps, but not quite in this story. Fans of the From Dusk Till Dawn, the series adaptation of that vampire crime movie, will recognise Isa Gonzalez Reña, and she is the actress who played Santanico Pandemonium, the vampiress, in that series. She was also Nisiana in the cyberpunk film Alita Battle Angel, has appeared as a character in the Fast and the Furious spin-off film Hobbs and Shaw. And she gets to play an executive within the Apex Corporation. Oh, speaking of characters who I've seen before, or actors at least, we've got Julian Dennison, and he plays Josh Valentine, who's sort of the sidekick to um, to Millie Brown's character. And he's the New Zealand boy who we saw as Ricky Baker in Hunt for the Wilder People. And also he was in uh, Deadpool 2, playing the character of Russell Firefist Collins. So he actually does good work in this film as the sidekick, providing a bit of comic relief along the way with some judiciously placed lines. Well, look, it's quite a situation for the kid to be in, (laughs) and he makes the most of it in this. Oh, reappearing again is uh, Kyle Chandler playing Dr. Mark Russell. He was playing uh, Millie's character of Madison's dad and so gets a reappearance in this film. I earlier mentioned Kaylee Hottle playing Gia and she's a native of Skull Island, a survivor from there, who's got this really special bond with Kong. And uh, she's also the adopted daughter of Eileen's character, And she comes from, the actress that is, uh, comes from Georgia in the US, uh, comes from an all-deaf family, and so she uses that expertise in this film to use sign language, which is a particular plot point in Godzilla versus Kong. She's just wonderful. You know, one of those little kid actresses who just steal the scene, even if it's a 300-foot-tall giant ape that's the other side playing against her. Amazing. I reckon she's going to have a great career coming up. Oh, and the head of the Apex Cybernetic Corporation is an actor who I have actually seen before in other films, uh, Demian Bashir Najira, and he's a, a Mexican actor who has appeared in some of those telenovelas, and also you will have seen him in The Hateful Eight as well as Machete Kills. And you may also have run across him in Alien Covenant, where he plays Sergeant Lope. Oh, and he was also in a film called Chaos Walking, which Megan reviewed last week. So, Godzilla vs. Kong. In zero-G rating terms, it definitely gets a firm, oh my god, yeah, rating. There's so much in it to unpack in terms of the fight choreography and the quite elegant way that they've used motion capture to inform the creature's stunt choreography or their battle rage, as it were. And 
lots of other things, but, you know, we're going to run out of time on Zero G to talk about the ball today, and I do actually want to play a couple of other tracks before we sign off for today. Now, I would say that maybe perhaps the framing infrastructure for the monster fights is not as arch as it could be, but at least they don't get too far into that environmental terrorism trope that they pushed out in the last film, Godzilla King of Monsters, which I I thought was quite appalling. But this time around, it's good old corporate exploitation that's in the sights of the filmmakers, if only briefly so, really. It's just sort of sprinkled over the plot. Uh, You also find there's an element that I've pretty much not talked about in this review because I want to leave it as a surprise for the cinema goer. So there you go. We'll talk about that perhaps another time on Zero G. I'd like to thank our podcaster, Kayla Larson, who is not a paranoid conspiracy theorist, at least that I know of. But she has also been doing diligent service for Zero G over the pandemic year that we've just been through and continues to do so. So thanks a lot, Kayla. And as we said before, thank you, Megan, for continuing to be the co-host of Zero G. All right. Now, I wanted to give you a bit of a break from me gab gabbing all the time and let Bob Newhart, American comedian, have a crack at it with his album Something Like This. And he's got this story about a security guard whose first day on the job is when King Kong climbs the Empire State Building. (laughs) And here we go with Bob Newhart's take on the day that King Kong came to the Big Apple. Uh, Hi, this is Jim Beaver. I play Bobby Singer on the TV series Supernatural. And you're listening to 3 Triple R FM Zero G, you idiots. <laughs> King Kong from Bob Newhart's comedy album, something like this. All right, well, let's go out before Joe Renatic comes in with Astral Glamour with Owen Campbelling's somewhat merrily rambling One Will Fall the unofficial theme for Godzilla versus Kong. And it is very unofficial and somewhat fishy, and I'm all right with that because this is Zero G. Rob Jan, signing off for today. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.